You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. We'll be reading from Romans tonight, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, has he, some, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? or also for the uncircumcised. Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, Mercy View. My name's Trey. I'm a church planning resident here uh, at Mercy View. Grateful for another opportunity to get to open God's word with you. We're going to camp out there in Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 1. A couple weeks ago, our uh, dogs got out of the backyard three or four times in uh, the week uh, because there was a hole in the fence that had gotten uh, exasperated uh, after I had fixed it uh, when we put a playset in last March. And over time, the fence began to break down and it just busted out and uh, broke. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, I decided I'm going to repair this part of the fence, and I bought enough uh, planks to go in and start repairing the different pieces of the fence. And when I got there, I realized, oh, I could rebuild this entire thing right now. And so um, decided impromptu to uh, build this horizontal fence that we've been wanting and, and wanted to do that and tried to do it by myself, couldn't. And so I had Ellen come out and help me after she woke up uh, from sleeping because she had been at work the night before. And in the middle of her helping me, um, obviously my, my two-year-old and my four-year-old both thought that it would be fun to help me as well. Um, and so they came and they stood there, um, swung hammers around very dangerously toward uh, one another, had to take those from them. And uh, they, they watched and maybe kind of touched a plank as we're putting it up while uh, we spent a few hours getting this ready to go. Now, you know what would be really absurd is if when my two-year-old, who was really excited about getting to help, said, hey, we built a fence. I actually said, yeah, you know how much help he was? He was boasting in the fact that 
he, being two years old, who really Our boasting, or anyone's boasting, about what they contribute to the work of salvation in our lives would be like my two-year-old boasting about how he helped us put that fence together a couple weeks ago. And he stood there. He was there. But he didn't really do anything. It wasn't him that was working. He gets the benefit of it. He can go play in the backyard, and I don't have to worry about him getting out. He's going to get to benefit from that being there, but... but he has nothing to boast about because he didn't do any of the work. And Paul is using the story of Abraham. He's going he's to point to David to show us this juxtaposition that he's been bringing out in the text back in chapter 3, now moving into chapter 4, between the law and faith. He's going to show us how faith, apart from works, works of the law, is how everyone is saved, including these great men like Abraham and David. And I think by and large, this is something that's really hard for us to grasp. Like just kind of left to ourselves, we, we have a hard time wrestling with this whole concept of justification by faith alone. And I think what makes it difficult, and the reason that um, again and again we have to keep driving this in, and we have to keep uh, having the hammer on the nail of this same point, and the reason Paul's going to do that again and again in this letter, is that our flesh is bent toward law-keeping and attempting to save ourselves, and, and wanting to say, look what I did, when in reality, we didn't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We are what uh, Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, calls lawish. We have this bent toward... ...by our key... presses in on this with a statement uh, in his chapter where he talks about our lawish hearts, where he says there's two ways to live the Christian life. You, you can either live the Christian life for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can either live it for the smile of God or you can live it from the smile of God. And what he's saying here is that you can live your life for the heart of Christ, meaning acceptance by what you do, or you can live it from his heart. For the smile of God, trying your best to earn his approval, or you can live it from the smile of God, resting in the reality that Christ has won for you, but you will never win for yourself. Tonight, as we dig into these 12 verses here in chapter 4, th this is what Paul is wanting to drive home. 
That you'll never be able to live your life in such a way as Christ's favor or the Father's approval. But the good news is that you don't have to. And so for the next 25, 30 minutes, we're going to unpack that gospel truth by looking at, at three things. First uh, is Paul's illustration here. That the, the way that God is working salvation now is the way that God has always worked salvation. And Abraham's righteous and the story, righteousness and the story of how he is made righteous is the way in which that the, the gospel has always been salvation by grace through faith. And so um, we're going to start there in verse 1. Let's look down to verse 3 together. How has God always saved? What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, Paul writes, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Back in November, preached through the end of Romans chapter 2. And one of the things that I said was that what makes it so hard uh, to preach the early parts of Romans is that you have this two and a half chapter block in this letter where Paul is just again and again and again hitting on the bad news. Just showing us our brokenness. He's showing us the way sin has marred everything. And he does all of this before he starts but here in chapter 4, Paul's already started to do that and press in onto the hope of the gospel. And so as we look at what Paul's saying here, I'm really grateful for the context that Romans 1, 2, and the first part of chapter 3 gives us. Because the only way that we're ever going to believe that we must be justified by faith apart from works, by grace and not by our effort, is to have that kind of clear-eyed picture that we get from that first part of this letter. And when we see ourselves rightly, when we see how we suppress the truth, when we see the ways in which sin is still lurking around the corner in our hearts and in our lives, and we see what God demands, it, it makes us realize that we need something outside of ourselves to bring us hope. And, and, and the only way that we get that, the only way that we get justification is what Paul's pressing home right here by having us consider Abraham. Now, one commentator that I read uh, said that for Paul's Jewish contemporaries, Abraham, the forefather, was an ideal figure. They were his children, his offspring, according to the flesh. Because of him, they derived their special relationship with God as the chosen people. With him alone, God had his covenant, and he was considered by God to be upright. And so Paul poses this rhetorical question, and like, like we know what he's getting at because he, he's made it pretty plainly here, um, but to his first readers, the, the rhetorical question in and of itself must have been shocking. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Like they know the answer, the answer is nothing. Like Abraham's works gained him nothing, and, and, and they have to be wondering how and this is the point that he's making, that the, the patriarch of patriarchs, the one to whom God had promised to make a great nation from, to bless the nations through, who had been given the covenant and its seal and circumcision, even he wasn't righteous enough on his own. 
Even he wasn't upright enough. We read that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we're going to unpack that here in just a few moments, but I, I want to let that sink in. I want us to consider the way in which the gospel is for busted up, broken, despicable people. For his audience in this context, Paul is, is talking to people who, who see Abraham as this model of righteousness. And what he's trying to show them is that even the most righteous among us have no shot at salvation apart from the grace of God. But I think we can also take a look at Abraham and go, man, Abraham's story and this picture of Abraham that we get and that God counts him as righteous, it also gives us this picture of the fact that the gospel is for broken people as well. Like just consider Genesis 13. Like this is before Genesis 15 when we read that it was counted to him as righteousness because he believed God. Abraham is traveling down to Egypt and he looks at his wife and he says, listen, you're beautiful and they're going to think that you're beautiful. And so could you please just tell them that you're my sister so that they don't kill me and take you? But like he's a coward. He's deceptive. He cares more about his own skin than he does about his wife. And if God doesn't step in to rescue them in that moment, the entire plan of salvation seems like it would get blown up. And that's before, not after God counts him righteous by faith. Then consider after Genesis 15. Now this is after he's counted as righteous. Like, he, he is so unsure at this moment that God's really going to keep his promise after being so confident that he would, that he listens to Sarah, and he takes her servant, and he sires Ishmael. And that leads him to all sorts of other sinful things and all sorts of other moments of cowardice and sin. Yet none of these failures changed the statement above. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because it was faith that saved Abraham, not the things that he had done. And that faith that, that produces genuine true righteousness through being justified in Jesus Christ is greater than sin. It's greater than past sin. It's greater than any sin that we're dealing with in the moment. And it's greater than anything that we're going to do in the future. Abraham believed God's promise that he would send a son and that through that son and through his offspring, the entire world would be blessed. Exactly what it meant or how it was going to shake out there was something that stirred inside of him. His spirit was pricked, and in light of hope, he trusted in God's promise. This is how God has always saved. This is how God has always operated. This is how he continues to save even today. And the next few verses show us why justification by faith is exceedingly good news. Look with me starting in verse 4. Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but 
as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, there's a difference between getting what you're owed and receiving a gift. So what is it that we're owed? See, when my paycheck hits the bank on the 30th and the 15th, uh, I, you know, I'm super grateful that I have a job. I'm super grateful that I can pay my bills, that I can buy groceries and, and, and the like. However, the thing that I'm not going to do is, is rush down to our accounting department and just gush over how grateful I am that they put that money in my direct deposit. And the reason for that is because if they didn't put that money there, we would be having a problem, and that's why I would be going downstairs. Because we got this little social contract going on where in exchange for my time and my effort and my energy, they put money in my bank account from their bank account. I'm owed that. That's mine. And I'm going to want it. And the only reason I'm going down there, even though I'm grateful, is not going to be to talk about how grateful I am. Hey man, where's my money at? Right? I, I want to know what's going on because that's what's owed to me. Now, that is not at all the way that I respond if my grandma comes up and gives me a Pentecostal handshake as she's hugging my neck before we head back home. If you don't know what a Pentecostal handshake is, it's when somebody comes and, and, and they shake your hand and as they pull their hand away, they leave some cash in, in your hand for you. Right? Um, she has more than once as I'm down visiting her money. And I, and I immediately go, no, Grandma, you don't have to do that. You don't have to give me any money. I, I protest and I say, I got plenty of money. I'm a grown man. I can Take my money because it's a gift. And she doesn't owe me anything. I expect nothing from her. And what overflows out of my heart in that moment is gratitude. She's blessed me. Like if my response to my grandmother is, listen, you don't have to do this. I don't want to take your money. What is it that I'm doing in that moment? I'm looking at her and I'm saying, hey, your generosity, this do. It's not something that's worth me accepting because, because we haven't made a transaction. You don't owe me anything. I, I haven't done anything. And if I was to work to try to repay that, how offensive would that be to her? But it seems too easy. I haven't heard it. I need to repay it in some way. And Paul here in this passage is trying to, to show us that that tendency is in each and every one of us. That feeling of, I gotta do something. I gotta earn this somehow. That's exactly what crops up in our hearts as we encounter grace in the gospel. I gotta earn it. I gotta do something. The gospel is wrapped up in the reality that God doesn't deal with us according to what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we're owed. 
how radically countercultural that is for a moment. God doesn't deal with any of us. Any of us who are in him, he doesn't deal with you on the basis of what you deserve. And I imagine that as you consider that reality, you, you probably are, are feeling one of two ways. Like you're either feeling overwhelmingly grateful and a little bit unsure that you can really believe that that can be just that true, that he really doesn't expect anything from me, that he offers something to me freely, or you're, you're slightly, maybe even greatly offended I want God to give me what, what I deserve. I'm a good person. Because the reality is there, there's, there's two types of people when they hear the gospel. The, the first response there is a response that's rooted in someone who really knows themselves well. Like if you really know yourself and you're really honest with yourself and you really know who you are, then you know just how deeply broken you are. Know that what God offers to you in salvation is, is this amazing grace that, that you do not deserve. Now, you know how wicked your thoughts can be. You know how you act when no one begins to spring up. Can that be, can that be true? The second response is rooted in the heart of uh, the good person. Now, I, I think there's two types of, of good people um, that, that could respond to this. And, and um, th there, there's two people, their response being based on this feeling of being a good person, of being moral. But how they feel is way different. First, you, you, you have what I would call the passive good person. Like the person who just kind of lives their life without thinking too much about how they're living, but just in a general sense, they're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm a good guy. I don't murder anyone. Like, I don't, I've never cheated on my wife. I don't steal things from my boss. Like, I'm just, I'm just a good person. Like, by these, these kind of just basic standards of, of being good, I'm good. Yet, because if they give it too much thought, they're going to be just a little bit offended. And then there's another type of good person, the one that I would call the, the active good person, the one that does everything that they can to keep the rules. They show up early, they stay late. Like the older brother in Luke 15, they, they look at the lavish offer of grace that Paul's talking about here. And I've always been here. I've always obeyed. At least, you know, I haven't disobeyed in any serious ways. What do I get? Like, give me what I deserve. But what do we see in the first two and a half chapters of this letter? We see the weight of what God requires is crushing. And that what we deserve is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Now, you want God to be fair? You want God to be just? 
And trust me, he's going to be because he is, because it's his nature and that's his character. But don't for a second think that if what God is going to do that is truly fair and truly just, if you are standing before him on your own merits, you're going to be able to survive. You're going to be able to stand. You can't. Abraham, the father of faith, couldn't. David, the one that we're told is the, a man after God's own heart. He had no chance. That's why he said in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's why he rejoices in Psalm 103 that God is merciful to his people and he's not gonna deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. And David had to learn to see the depths of his sin the hard way. They had to be confronted after he had slept with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to try to cover it up. They had to be confronted by the prophet Nathan. He had to be called to repentance. And that experience, it broke him. He saw himself for who he truly was. And it's from We have to know this. We have to see this. That, that even on our best day, you and I, left on our own, are still desperate sinners. The one who works and demands his wages will receive them. But in chapter 6, Paul's going to tell us exactly what those wages are. Listen, God's gift is eternal life. And tonight, each of us is offered his gift. My grandma handing you a $100 bill on the sly and refusing to hear your protest to the contrary. God is offering something so much sweeter. And he's offering it much more relentlessly. So Paul quotes David when he says that the person whose sins are forgiven and guilt is covered is blessed. And then he follows that up with a question. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now this question and the bit that follows require a bit of unpacking uh, because you might not have been here back in November um, when we went through the last half of chapter two, which I also had the opportunity of, of, of preaching and explaining. Um, and, and my guess is that circumcision, especially circumcision you know, 3,000 years ago, um, isn't something you spend a whole lot of time thinking about. Like just not something that's at the top of your mind. And so um, we need to kind of understand well, this three chapter span in Romans, he's, he's going to mention circumcision 23 times. And what Paul's keying in on here when he contrasts circumcision and uncircumcision is the external sign of God's covenant that he had given to his people in the Old Testament. It was a sign that was specifically given to Abraham from God for he and his household to distinguish them from the people around them in the promised land. It's really important for us to understand because by nature of what circumcision is, this marks God's people in a very distinct and a very permanent way. And for the very religious Jew in Paul, the 
blessing and his favor on his people. It was this reminder that he had chosen them. And so Paul wants to press on his Jewish hearers in the same vein that he did back in chapter 2 when he first mentioned circumcision in the letter. There he's in the Jewish culture and religious community and those outside, they both fundamentally have the same problem. They're sinners. The Gentiles and their unrighteousness and blatant disregard for the law of God and their suppression of the truth and the Jews and their hypocrisy and their faithlessness. And so we get here to chapter 4 and he's already told us what the gospel is and, and he begins to key in on the fact that both Jew and Gentile Circumcised and uncircumcised, both have the same hope for righteousness. And it's not in that. And so he continues in verse 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham's righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, the hope both Jew and Gentile have is the same hope. And it's the same hope that each and every one of us who have ever been redeemed from sin will ever have. You see, from the time that sin enters into the human story, God has been saving men and women by the exact same means, by grace, through faith, in God's promise. And this is why it's so important to know that Abraham is counted righteous He was given the sign of God's covenant with him. He says it right here in the next verse. Because God's purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised so that righteousness could be counted to them as well. Of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And we're going to press down a little bit further on this idea of Abraham as the the father of faith and as the father of uh, the the people of God, uh, whether they're ethnically a part of the the Jewish people in the Old Testament or whether they're a part of the church today, next week, because Paul presses in on that a little bit more. Is that those who trust in Jesus, they are sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of God, not ethnically, but through faith. Because as we believe the same promise that he believed, we're participating in the same covenant of grace that God started all those millennia ago. You see, the promise that Abraham believed, it was rooted in something even further back than that moment in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. I mean, in that passage, God comes to Abraham in a vision, and it's, it's right after this big battle that's taken place and Abraham's kind of down in the dumps. Like he, he, he had just met with this guy named Melchizedek and he had just been blessed. And he's sitting and God comes to him and says, hey, hey, Abraham, man, you are, you are so blessed. And Abraham says, yeah, God, I mean, I don't really see how. Like, yeah, I got stuff. But, you know, you promised me a son. You promised me land. And, and as it is right now, I'm kind of nomadic and
see something out those stars. And I can just imagine Abraham starts counting one, two. Okay, what's the point in this? Because there's no way I'm going to get to count all of those. And you can almost hear in the narrative, God just kind of smirk a little bit. And he says to Abraham, yeah, and that's exactly what your offspring are going to be too. And he reiterates the promise. And he says, you're going to have a son. And this man, a man that Paul is going to go on to say was as good as dead, 90 years old, been wandering for couple decades, his wife's 80-something, he hoped against hope. And in that moment, what we've been considering tonight, in that moment, standing there looking at the stars as God's speaking to Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Holy Spirit worked faith in his heart and he received in that moment the greatest gift that he had ever been given. Awakened his heart to the wonder of faith and in the depths of his heart, he didn't know how, but he knew that God would be true to his word. Abraham had no idea that what he was believing God for was far greater and who was going to inherit his stuff, and whether or not his name was going to live on. He wasn't able to piece together that this is a continuation of the promise that God makes to Eve in Genesis 3, back in the garden, that, that through her offspring, there was going to be one that was going to come, and he was going to crush the head of the serpent. And he didn't see how God was weaving together this thread of redemption through every generation up into himself and how he was going to weave it through every generation for the next couple thousand years. He didn't understand what exactly it meant that through him the whole world would be blessed, but he believed God. And each and every one of us who trust Jesus are a part of that same lineage of faith. Through faith in Jesus, the one who died so we could live, the one who earned what we couldn't earn for ourselves, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, who defeated death and reigns at the right hand of the Father, even now, for those of us who trust him, God is offering us this gift of righteousness. And he's offering it apart from any meager effort that we can muster. Would you accept it tonight? Like I said, jumping off of Dane Ortland's quote as we started to unpack the text this evening, you can either live your life for the heart of Christ or from it. You can either live it trying to earn his favor and acceptance or you, or you can rest in the fact that he's giving it to you. You can try to earn the smile of God, or you can realize that in Christ, when he sees you, he's already smiling. You don't have to earn his approval. Jesus did. Now don't get on the hamster. His approval. Because in Christ, God has already accepted you. He already approves of you. 
And in Christ, your faith is already counted as a righteousness. And I'll close this evening with a quote from 19th century English pastor, Charles uh, He said in this devotional I've been reading during the Advent season called Morning and Evening Something, I, th- I thought was just so helpful in understanding the way in which God views us in Christ as we've been justified by faith apart from works of the law. He says, the Lord's admiration of his church is very wonderful. He views her in himself, washed in his sin-atoning blood, glorious righteousness. And he considers her to be full of comeliness and beauty. She's not simply purer or well-proportioned. She's positively lovely and fair. She has actual merit. Her deformities of sin are removed. But more, she has through her Lord obtained a notorious righteousness by which an actual beauty is conferred upon her. Believers have a positive righteousness given to them when they become accepted in the beloved. Nor is the church barely lovely. She is superlatively so. Here's the good news tonight. Believe God's promises and be counted righteous. Trust in the finished work of Jesus, snake crusher, the offspring of Eve, of Abraham, of David, that brings blessing to the whole world. The one who lived this perfect righteousness, yet suffered the penalty of sin, your behalf. Trust in the mercy of God, that he would willingly give up his own son, so he could adopt you, busted, broken, Rebellious, scornful, hateful, vile, and take you as his own, as you are. Believe that God raised him from the dead and has now seated him at the right hand of the Father, where he is even now praying for you and covering you in his meritorious righteousness. Consider that for a moment. Like how crazy that statement is. Because we've been talking about how none of us have any merit that we can offer to God. And what Spurgeon Christ, it's as though we do. If you can believe that tonight, if you can trust Jesus in the way tonight and believe God's promises through faith, then this is who you are. Positively lovely and fair. Possessing actual merit. Not your own, but the merit of Christ. You deserve. And not what you have earned. He gives you what Jesus earned. In Christ, he doesn't see you as barely lovely. He sees you as superlatively, as exceedingly so. Would you, with Abraham, believe that tonight? Let's pray.